trying to block me from the pulpit, I think. <laughs> well, one of the dilemmas of preaching year after year at Christmas time is finding a new passage. It is a trial. You know, after your first four or five Christmases, you start wondering, well, should I re-preach what I preached? And then, you know, you start getting a little desperate. So this morning, we're getting real desperate. I think we're all aware that Christmas time has become very commercial. Businesses have capitalized on people's desire to give gifts in celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. Yet for many, Christ is fading into the background. And for even more, it's totally gone. Jesus is never even mentioned uh, except in songs. Uh, he's This Christmas story isn't read. Jesus isn't worshipped. People don't go to church. They just are keeping the presents and getting rid of Jesus. They have replaced Jesus with, you know, Santa and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and the Grinch whose heart grew five times that one Christmas Eve. And the world likes fictitious characters better than the real person of Jesus Christ because those fictitious characters don't demand anything of them and don't judge them if they don't do what they're supposed to do. And even for many in the church, those who go to church and call themselves Christians, Christmas is kind of to them just, you know, the little baby Jesus in a manger. You know, there he is in a perfectly little straw-laden manger. He's uh, glowing. Uh, Joseph and Mary are kneeling down. They're, they're looking at him. And uh, the little drummer boy's in the background. And there's the three wise men who are there and getting ready to present their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Nobody knows what those are. I mean, they know what the gold is, but the other two, they don't. But they're going to present them. And then there's uh, the uh, the token cow or two, token sheep or two, the donkey, which you're supposed to understand Mary rode on. And uh, then there's the angel, beautiful uh, female angel holding a banner that says Gloria. And that's Christmas. There he is. You can see him. Well, the problem is, though, is that the Bible doesn't tell us where Jesus was born. I'm sorry. He wasn't born in a manger. He was laid in a manger after he was born. That would be a very tight fit. <laughs> there is no mention, I'm sorry to say, of any farm animals. No cows, no sheep, no donkeys, no camels. There, uh, immediately after his birth. There's no mention in the Bible of the little drummer boy either. And there's no mention of an angel, a beautiful female angel, holding a banner. This is Gloria. As a matter of fact, the Bible never mentions any female angels. They're all male. The three wise men did come, but they didn't come the night Jesus was born. They came about a year and a half later when Jesus was living in a house in Bethlehem. And sorry to say, we don't know how many wise men there were. All we know is they gave three kinds of gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There could have been 12. And so we come to Christmas a lot of times and we have all these ideas about Christmas, but they're not from the Bible. They're from nativity sets and Christmas songs and who knows what legends passed down from our childhood. Which often ignore the facts of the scripture and disregard biblical chronology. 
But even if you live in a family that studies the Christmas story every Christmas, even if you live in a family where you break out the Bible and you talk about the truth and you've sorted out all the fact from fiction and you have mentally rearranged uh, everything to fit into proper biblical chronology, Christmas can still be about just the cute little baby in the manger. And granted, this is a big part of it. You know, it is about the birth of Christ. And so we don't want to downplay that at all. And it is a big deal that God was born, that he became a man. And the person of Jesus Christ was born of that virgin on that first Christmas day. But what I want you to do is I want you to search your mind. And I want you to ask yourself if you've ever seen any of these kinds of things. Maybe you have decorations on your tree that depict these things or Wrapping paper or whatever. How about you have any wrapping paper with uh, fierce angelic wires? I didn't think so. How about a woman clothed in the sun standing on the moon? No. How about a big hideous red dragon with an appetite for children with seven heads and ten horns? No. How about pictures with slaughtered babies? How about women weeping, refusing to be comforted? How about ornaments on the tree with uh, the profile of the maniacal, proud baby slaughtering Herod? How about reminders of people burning in hell or glorified in heaven? How about reminders of Israel being oppressed by Gentile powers? Any Christmas symbols at all can you think of with Jesus coming back in wrath to execute his judgment on those who live on earth? See, all of those parts, we just kind of skim over. Hardly we ever even think of them. Well, this morning, we're going to think of them. This morning, I want to try in a large or biblical view of Christmas to encompass more of the overall plan of what God is doing in the birth of this child. I want you to see that Christmas is about a spiritual battle between demons and holy angels. About the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That Christmas is about the entire human race being under the wrath of a holy and just God who must punish sin. Christmas is about God becoming a man in the person of Jesus. Entering into a sin-cursed world. It is about Jesus offering himself up as a sacrifice for undeserving sinners so that he might die for them as a human sacrifice, shedding his blood, being tortured and crucified so that he might save those who deserve the wrath of God by suffering God's wrath in their place. I want you to see that Christmas is about God's plan to defeat Satan and his demonic minions. To wrest the the world away from Satan. To rip it out of his grip. To cast Satan and his demons in the lake of fire. To judge every single uh, person on earth who will not submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And to save all those who will. And in the process bring himself glory. You see you just don't hear about a lot of those things during Christmas time. And uh, I was driving around this week. I was studying this tag and I was listening. I was looking and it's just not there. I didn't see any big dragons. None. One of my favorite Christmas songs was written by Bob Bob Coughlin. The title of the song is in the first light. I like it because the words address a more significant scope, a more uh, biblical scope than most Christmas songs. The words are as follows in the first light of a new day. No one knew he had arrived. Things continued as they had been while the newborn softly cried, but the heavens wrapped in wonder knew the meaning of his birth in the weakness of a baby. They knew God had come to earth As his mother held him closely, it was hard to understand that her baby, not yet speaking, was the word of God to man. 
He would tell them of his kingdom, but their hearts would not believe. They would hate him, and in anger they would nail him to a tree. But the sadness would be broken as the song of life arose, and the firstborn of creation would ascend and take his throne. He had left it to redeem us, but before his life began, he knew he'd come back, not as a baby, but as the Lord of every man. Hear the angels as they're singing on the morning of his birth. How much greater will their song be when he comes again? When he comes again. Hear the angels as they're singing on the morning of his birth. But how much greater will their song be when he comes to earth, when he comes to rule the earth? Now, people, those are some great lyrics. Those are some great lyrics because they talk about more the meaning of the birth rather than just the fact of it. They tell us Jesus was born in humility, that he was rejected, that he was crucified, that he made atonement for sins so he could redeem us, that he rose from the dead, that he ascended into heaven to take his throne and he will come back in glory to rule the earth. Well, this morning I want to take you to a Christmas text, which is unlike any other. I am sure, I'm almost positive, none of you have ever sat for a Christmas message on Revelation 12. But it's going to happen this morning. Revelation 12, 1 through 6. Now, as you're finding that passage, I want to remind you, the theme of the book of Revelation is Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, the, the Greek word is apocalypsis, which is where they get the title apocalypse from. You might have heard the book of Revelation referred to as the apocalypse of John or the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And the theme of the book is about Jesus coming back in glory to smash the powers of darkness and to establish a kingdom of righteousness. A lot of people come to the book of Revelation. It's pretty scary. I mean, it's intimidating. Um, if you've studied the book, you probably have, you know, pulled your hair out in many places, not knowing which interpreter to believe. Nevertheless, it's the only book in the Bible that promises a blessing for those who read it at both the beginning and the end. No other book does this. Just this one. So it's worth reading. Because even though you may not be able to understand some things, you'll be able to understand, I think, quite a bit more than you realize. Now, the author of Revelation is the Apostle John, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He wrote the book around 95 AD. He was the last apostle to be alive. He was incarcerated on the island of Patmos, which is an island in the Aegean Sea for preaching the Gospel. And so John is receiving this vision about God's plan for the future, specifically the very end days of time before the second coming. And there is a good chronological divider verse in Revelation 119, which reads, and this is where the original Lord is, is speaking to John, telling him what to write. He says, therefore, write the things which you have seen. And the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. And so that is exactly what John does in chapter one, verses one through 20. He talks about the things that are then in Revelation chapters two and three. Or first he talks about the things that were then he talks about the things that are in chapter two and three. Remember, he writes the letters to the churches. And then he talks about future things in chapter 4 through 22. Now, in chapters 6 through 18 of this prophecy section, this what's going to happen in the future section, God or Christ has John give us a lot of information about this time period known as the tribulation. It is a seven year period of time. Immediately before the coming, the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
And it's a very significant time. It's spoken of in prophecy in different ways, especially the latter half of this seven-year period, which is often referred to as the Great, period, the, the great Tribulation. And it is that uh, time, times, and a half a time, or three and a half years, or 1,260 days. It's referred to in Daniel and Revelation. It is a very significant time also in, um, in Jesus' discussion with the disciples about what will take place, what are the signs of his coming. Matthew 24 and 25. So this time is an interesting time. It's a time when God kind of slows down his work in the church among the Gentiles. Remember, he said in the parable of the vineyard to the unbelieving Jewish leaders, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. Uh, Paul in Romans 11 speaks of, of uh, the, the, this natural rootstock and the Gentiles being grafted in. But there is a time when God then goes back to graft in the natural stock to return and begin to offer the kingdom to his wayward people, Israel. And that time is the tribulation in one place in scripture is called the time of Jacob's trouble because God judges the world. He judges Israel, but he does it for a redeeming purpose. And so this period of judgment is described in. In having uh, seals broken that release judgment, uh, trumpets sounded which release judgment, and bowls of wrath that are poured out on the earth. There are three sets of seven in, in the John's description of this tribulation period. Well, right in between the trumpet judgments and the final bull judgments, John stops... And he gives us information about what's going on in the angelic realms and on earth and tries to give us a few prophecies that help us understand the significance of what is going on. And it just so happens that our text this morning is the first thing he mentions. Now I'm going to read verses one through six because they're kind of a unit. And then we're going to look closely though at verses one through five. So if you have your Bible, and you're turning and you're at Revelation 12, then look at verse one and follow along as I read. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child and she cried out being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and 10 horns and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away the third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the great and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, I just want you to know, this text is huge in its scope. It's chronologically kind of jumbled. It's just talking about things in the past, things in the future. It's talking about all of these significant events, things in the earth, things in heaven. Whew, it's, it's great. But don't let it intimidate you. I mean, this is like, this is fun. This is fun interpreting a passage like this, man. It is like this huge interpretive puzzle. And it's really cool to just sit down, grind through this, and try and figure out what this means. So we're going to basically have three things we want to look at. We want to look at this pregnant woman in labor. Two, a dragon hungry to devour. And three, a child to rule all nations. So let's get our detective caps on and see what we can figure out from this text about the meaning and significance of Christmas. First, we have a pregnant woman in labor. Look at verse 1. John says, a great sign appeared in heaven. Now, the word sign tells us that John is seeing something figurative or symbolic. He is kind of having a heavenly vision of things that will happen in both heaven and earth. And so... Right off the bat, we know, well, this isn't a literal thing. And so he's going to tell us about something figurative, some sort of symbol, some sign he's seeing. And what is the sign? The text says it's a woman. It's not only a woman. 
but a woman clothed with the sun and not only clothed in the sun, she's standing on the moon. She has the moon under her feet. And not only that, she has a crown and not only a crown, but a crown made up of 12 stars. So she has very astronomical attire. Now, obviously, this isn't literal. Wrap yourself in the sun. It would be a very scorching experience. Well, when you try to deal with interpretive, uh, interpretive problems like this or challenges, whenever you're dealing with figurative language, the best thing to do is to always start with the literal meaning of the words and ask yourself, what does it literally mean? And then try to, once you understand the literal thing, then you try and understand its spiritual parallel. So in other words, when Jesus says, I am the door, you say, okay, what is a door? What is a door used for? What are the characteristics of a door? And then how is Jesus like that? Okay, that would be an example. So what is the sun? The sun is that big ball of fire we see in the sky. It is that cosmic entity, that uh, uh, big mass of burning debris out there in space that is igniting our whole solar system. It is what illuminates the whole solar system and half the world at any one point of time. What about the moon? The moon is also a luminary. It receives its light from the sun. The moon lights up things at night along with the stars. We see this, for instance, in Genesis 1, 16, as it describes God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. When you look in the scripture, whenever you see texts that where the moon and the stars and uh, the sun all appear together, they almost always refer to the glory of something or the light of something. So it's probably best to understand the sun, the moon, the stars as representing the woman's glory. So she's figuratively clothed in, standing on, crowned in glory. Now, this doesn't tell us who the woman is, though. But there's one thing I didn't mention, and that is her crown on her head consists of 12 stars. We ask ourselves, okay, what significant things in the Bible come in sets of 12? Well, there's two prominent things. There are the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel. I think that's what is being talked about here, and you'll see why. Do you remember who the father of Joseph was? It was Jacob, right? And do you remember the name that God gave to Jacob? Israel. And do you remember when... Joseph had his dream in Genesis 37. He dreamt that the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowed down to him. And of course, the dream was interpreted. Everybody knew what it meant. It meant that Jacob and Rachel and 11 of his brothers would bow down to Joseph as he would in the future become the ruler of Egypt. Now, our text is not about Joseph or people bowing down to anybody. But what's interesting is, is God often, as you go through the prophetic, he often gives similar visions with similar themes. So if we say, okay, the sun represents the glory of the woman, I don't think it's talking about the woman being, you know, wrapped in Jacob and standing on Rachel. I think it's just saying that the woman is clothed in glory and the woman is, is Israel. Israel. Israel who is composed of the 12 tribes. And I think John is seeing something similar to what Joseph saw, but not identical. But the emphasis again is not on the woman, as we shall see, but on her child. Now, remember that Rachel had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin, and Rachel's son, Joseph, had a double portion and gave his inheritance to Ephraim and Manasseh. But the Messiah, and that's who the child is, we'll see this in a minute, the Messiah doesn't come from Rachel. 
The Messiah comes from the tribe of Judah, who is the child of Leah. And so I think the best way to just understand this is that the woman is Israel. She is clothed in glory. Now, what special child was promised to Israel? Well, we've been singing about it. We've been hearing about it in scripture reading. If you look at verse five, it tells us the child is the child who would rule all nations. We'll get there in a minute. One popular Christmas song answers this question very succinctly. This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Or as another hymn puts it, born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. Israel was promised a child who would become king, who would rule the nations, who would deliver them from their enemies, who would save them from their sins. And Dave Nickerson, the providence of God, read Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read them quickly again. But as I do, what I want you to do is I want you to look for something. I want you to take note of this prophecy and what was predicted as being Israel's situation during the time immediately preceding Jesus' birth. Because Isaiah is writing about what will happen right before or at the time of Jesus' birth. He says this, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. Notice, her is Israel, anguish is her problem. In earlier times, he, that's God, treated the land of Zebulun and Naphtali with contempt. This tells us that God's contempt was on the people of Israel. But later on, he shall make it glorious by way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, which is where the area of Naphtali and Zebulun were, the area of Galilee, which had a lot of Gentiles there. The people who walk in darkness will see what? The great light. And we know, if you've ever read John's gospel, he talks about this in the first chapter significantly, as being Jesus. Then he goes on to say, those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of the harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you shall break the yoke of their burden. Notice they are under burden. And the staff from their shoulders. In other words, they're, they've got this staff. The picture is they're loaded down with burden. And it comes from the rod of their oppressors. This is the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tomb, the cloak robed, robed in, uh, rolled in blood will be for burning, for fuel, for the fire. And so just stop there for a second. Notice how when the child is promised, this promised child is going to come Israel is being oppressed. They're burdened. They're in spiritual darkness. They're um, under the contempt of God. And then what's amazing is, is when you look down and you see God's answer to this, it's the child, which in the province of God, Edward mentioned. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it in justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And in case if you're wondering if it's going to happen, yes, it is, because the zeal of the Lord of hosts is going to accomplish it. And he did at least part of it. And what what Isaiah does is in a very few verses speaks of the time right before the birth of Christ, the birth of Christ, and then launches off into the future, skipping everything in between. Back to Revelation 12. Okay, in Revelation 12 now, look at the last part of verse 2. It says, and she... This woman who is in labor cried out being in labor and in pain to give birth. So when Jesus was born, Israel was in anguish because of the curse of God. They were in spiritual darkness. They were oppressed by Rome. This is the same thing predicted in Isaiah 9. It's the same thing that happened. Here we have Israel ready to give birth to this promised child. Okay, that's the first thing we need to understand. Secondly, we need to look at this dragon, a hungry dragon. Look at verse 3. 
A second point. Then another sign appeared in heaven. So we have some more figurative stuff going on there. What is it? And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. Now, who do you think that great red dragon might be? Well, if you look down in verse 9 of chapter 12, it tells us, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan. Bingo. The great red dragon is Satan. So the woman is Israel. This great red dragon is Satan. Okay? The fact that the dragon is great tells us of his power. The fact that he is red probably describes his murderous, killing character. We see John describes something like this in Revelation chapter 6, verse 4, as a red horse goes out and it goes forth to slay men. The whole point here is that Scripture teaches Satan is a murderer. He has a business and it's called death and dying. He has a hobby. It's called death and dying. It's his trade. It's what he finds pleasure in. So the dragon is described also as having seven heads and ten horns and all those, on those seven heads, seven diadems. And you're thinking, oh, what's this? Well, again, if you've been reading prophecy, if you've read other places in the Bible, you know that he's drawing from things also mentioned in Daniel 2, 7, 8, and 9. Remember in Daniel's dream of, uh, or Nebuchadnezzar's dream of that big statue? And, and that statue represented kingdoms leading up into the kingdom of Christ, the Messiah. Well, when you look back into history, what you discover is that Israel has been dominated, oppressed, and persecuted by six different Gentile powers. The Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greeks, and the Romans. But one kingdom is yet to come, and that is the kingdom of the Antichrist. And the kingdom of the Antichrist, we are told in different places in Daniel and in Revelation, is composed of ten other nations that the, the Antichrist rules to persecute Israel. We know from Daniel's prophecy, for instance, of the vision that there are these ten toes at the very end, right before the Messiah's kingdom is established. We know also in Daniel chapter 7, it speaks of another beast with ten horns, which represent these ten nations. The whole point is this. Satan has and will in the future desire to use Gentiles, Gentile rulers to oppress and afflict the nation of Israel. He's tried to destroy them, of course, in vain, because God always protects his people. But look at verse four, where it describes something this red dragon did. It says, and his tail swept away the third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth and thinking, oh, what does this mean? Well, we just happen to have some commentary in the near context. Look at verses 7 through 9. It says, And there was war in heaven, and Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. And the dragon is in the angels waged war. And they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Bingo. There we know. John is describing this cosmic battle and he is describing these stars, a third of the stars as being swept away and thrown down. See, what happened is, is shortly after creation, Satan rebelled against God and a third of the angels who were created then rebelled with him. And that's what happened here. It describes them being cast down to earth. Now, when does this happen? Did it already happen? Or is it happening in the future? Well, I think it's happening during the tribulation. Look at the middle of verse 12. John says, Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. So we have the stars of heaven representing angel. A third of them, the angels who rebelled with Satan against God, 
And during the tribulation, Satan and his demons wage war with the holy angels. But as a consequence, they lose and are cast down to earth. Now, it's important to note that Satan is permanently cast down to earth during this tribulation period. Now, a lot of people are confused about the fall of Satan and the expulsion of Satan from heaven. Many people put those two together. You talk to them, they say, yeah, when Satan fell and now he's on earth. The problem with that is it doesn't jive with the biblical data. You remember in the book of Job, when the angels came before the throne of God to be accountable to him, Satan was among them, right? He was in heaven there. Not only that, Satan is seen in Zechariah 3 as accusing Joshua the priest before the throne of God. Remember in Luke 10, it, Jesus describes what happened when after he sent out the disciples with power to cast out demons and authority to preach the gospel. And they did. And Jesus says, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. Remember in Ephesians six, it describes the Christians warring against the forces, the world forces of this darkness in the heavenly places. If you look down in Revelation 12, verse 10. What does it tell you about Satan and his location there? It says there that, um, let's see, an authority of his Christ have come down for the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them where? Before our God day and night. So what it seems is, is that Satan, since creation, yes, has been a roaring lion roaming about on the earth, seeking someone to devour. But he also has had access into heaven. And as the tribulation progresses, Satan realizes things are getting desperate because God, through judgments and through grace, is ripping Satan's kingdom away from him. And he doesn't like this. And so he and his demons begin to attack the holy angels. They are defeated and permanently expelled from heaven so that he can no longer stand before God and accuse the brethren day and night. Back to our text. Look at the middle of verse 4. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that Satan has tried repeatedly through these Gentile powers to destroy Israel and has failed. Not only that, he has used even uh, wicked kings and queens. In Athaliah's case, Athaliah was able to decrease the royal line to one person. But she wasn't quite successful. Satan was using her to try and snuff out the messianic line. Of course, God made sure it didn't happen. But now, realizing she has failed to destroy the people of God, the nation, uh, God's chosen nation, he now decides he's going to wait until her child is born and devour it. And if you remember the Christmas story, you remember when this first happened, right? Who was the first person God used to try and devour the child it was herod yeah you remember the magi come and they come to to uh herod about a year and a half after jesus was born and they say you know herod we've come to worship the, the child who was born to be king well herod was just he was a maniac i mean he was ruthless he was jealous he killed his relatives just for fun and he said what yeah, yeah, we've come. We saw a star in the east and we've come to worship this child. Well, Herod didn't like that much, but he said, oh, well, when you find him, come back and tell me so I too can go pay him homage. Not. He was going to kill him. Of course, if you remember the story, the Magi were warned in a dream to depart and go home by another way. Joseph and Mary were warned in a dream to flee for their life to Egypt. And then Matthew 2.16 says this, And then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. And so Satan used Herod to try and exterminate the promised child by just infanticide, just by wiping out anybody who fit into the envelope of Jesus' age. Of course, he failed. 
yet he didn't stop. If you remember, as you read through the Gospels, Jesus is tempted and Satan tries to get Jesus to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple. Later on, when Jesus starts his ministry, he incites a mob in Nazareth to try and throw him off a cliff. On numerous occasions, he uses the unbelieving Jewish leaders to try and kill Jesus. Finally, Satan thinks he's successful and that he tempts Judas to betray Christ. And to make sure that Judas gets the job done right, he possesses Judas in the upper room and makes sure he follows through, which he does. Jesus is then falsely accused by the Jewish leaders who Jesus said were of their father, the devil, and did their did the deeds of their father. And the Jews falsely accuse him. He uses the Gentile rulers to accuse him. He incites the crowd against Jesus. Jesus is scourged. Jesus is crucified. And Jesus is killed. And Satan thinks he has won. But as we read earlier in the song, the words of that one song, but the sadness would be broken as the song of life arose and the firstborn of creation would ascend and take his throne. He was defeated again. And this brings us to our third and final point. Look at verse five. And she gave birth to a son, a male child who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Now, here we have this child. We know who it is. But I'm telling you, if you were a Jew and you were reading this passage, there is one little phrase here that just would have meant bingo. I know who this is. And it's that phrase, rod of iron. And if you've been a Christian for a while, if you've spent any time in the Psalms, you know that that comes from Psalm 2. That's right, Psalm 2. Turn there. I guess you don't know what comes from Psalm 2. You guys read the read the Psalms more. Psalm chapter 2. This is a messianic psalm which predicts the coming of the Christ or Messiah. And all the Jews knew it. They loved this psalm. This was a very significant psalm. Notice what the words say. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying... Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and will terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Now just stop there for a second. Don't turn back. Notice that we have God installing his king. In Zion, that is Jerusalem, he is described as the Lord's anointed. Do you know what the Lord's anointed is? Do you know what the Hebrew word for anointed is? Messiah. The Lord's Messiah. And he would put the Messiah there to oppress the Gentile powers, which you read about also in Isaiah chapter 9. Now, continue on in verse 7. And I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son today. I've begotten you ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. A verse quoted, I think three or four times in the new Testament of Jesus, you shall break them with a rod of iron. There it is. The Messiah will break the Gentile nations with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the sun. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. Amazing, isn't it? Psalm 2 just lays out perfectly. That this child would be born the very son of God. God in human flesh who deserves to be worshipped, and if he's not worshipped, he will come back in wrath to judge those who don't. Back to Revelation 12, 5. Verse 5 goes on to say, And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, what's amazing here is you have the woman giving birth, that is, Jesus came from the nation Israel, 
He was born, and then it just goes right to his ascension. Nothing in between. Don't you think that's kind of strange? I thought that was kind of strange when I was studying. I thought, you know, what is this? You know, what about, you know, his life and all his teachings and his, you know, death, burial, resurrection? It just kind of goes from the beginning of the Gospels to Acts chapter 1 and his ascension. Well, it's not because John doesn't think this is important. John, of course, is just writing down what he's told. And it's not because Jesus doesn't think this is important, because we know in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, it says, When I saw him, that is, when John saw Jesus, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed me, placed his right hand in me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. So Jesus describes himself as being dead and being resurrected. The reason it's not included, though, is it isn't the significant thing to the theme of the book of Revelation, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember that John is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to tell us the significance of the second coming. And it just so happens to be that there has to be a first before there's a second. You see, because the Jews had this wrong. The Jews were confused. They thought, you know, from texts like Isaiah 9, the child will be born, the government will rest on his shoulders. He'll be born, he'll grow up, he'll conquer all the Gentiles and establish his kingdom. Even the apostles thought this was going to happen. Even up until the very end, they kept saying, is it now, Lord, you're going to restore your kingdom to Israel right now? They didn't see the gap in between, which we, of course, can see perfectly now. We we call it the church age, the time when God now goes to the Gentiles because the Jews rejected their own Messiah. The parable of the vineyard, the worker in the vineyards talk about this. The kingdom of God has been taken away from you, Jews, and will be given to a nation that is the Gentile nations producing the fruit of it. But we know from what Jesus said there and from texts like Romans 11 that the Jews will be grafted back in. They will be grafted back into that natural stock. The tribulation period is the time when God turns his attention towards Israel again. That's why the scriptures call it the time of Jacob's trouble. So we have here this incredible picture. Jesus is... We are told in Psalm 2, and we are told here, ascends to this heavenly throne, but it is for a purpose, a purpose so that he can come back. He is going to come back. He is a child born to rule all nations, and he hasn't done that yet. He hasn't proven to holy angels, he hasn't proven to men, and he hasn't proven to Satan and his demons that he is the king who will rule the heavens and the earth. He still has to do that from Jerusalem. And he wants us to understand that the kings that are on earth right now, God is going to judge them and he's still going to redeem his righteous remnant from Israel. He's still going to save his people, Israel. So we often miss these things during Christmas time. You know, we... We talk about all kinds of things, you know, I'm sorry, but the real meaning of Christmas is not partying parties for hosting and marshmallows for toasting and caroling out in the snow. And, you know, scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmas is long, long ago. It's about God conquering the forces of evil through a child. Who would grow up and did grow up. To offer himself a sacrifice and now he has ascended into heaven and he's waiting there and he's going to come back. And that's the part that hasn't happened yet. And I'm telling you, Satan would love nothing more than to see you judged and cast into the lake of fire. To be tormented forever. Do you know that the lake of fire was not prepared for people? The scriptures say the lake of fire was prepared for Satan and his angels. And that men, when they do not receive Jesus Christ, they take part in that. And Satan is glad to have company. He cares not how religious you are. He cares not how much you know the Bible. 
He doesn't really care whether you're an atheist or whether you're a pastor in a Bible believing church. There will be atheists in hell and right alongside them, there'll be pastors and priests and all sorts of religious people, Jesus tells us. All he wants to make sure is, is that you're never born again. He wants you to die. You can say you're anything. It doesn't matter to him. As long as you die trusting in anything other than Jesus Christ to save you, he's fine with that. And so what you need to ask yourself now is this. Are you saved? Do you know Christ? Probably the better question is this. J.C. Ryle says it this way. Do you love Christ? Do you love him? (laughs) You know, you can be a miserable Christian and still love Christ. Do you love him? Now you ask yourself, well, how do I know if I love him or not? Well, Jesus says, if you love me, you will what? And keep my commandments. Yeah, you obey him. That doesn't mean perfectly, but that will be the aim of your life. True believers love Christ and they live like it. Do you? Do you? Look at your heart. Look at your life. Answer the question. It's not hard. Do you love Jesus? Are you living for Christ or not? You know, whether you realize it or not, if you aren't living for Christ, if you don't love Jesus... You're living for the great red dragon. You're fighting on his side. You're marching in his colors, carrying his flag. You're serving Satan. If you aren't serving Christ, there's no middle ground. There's no reserves. You're either in battle against Christ or you're for for Christ. And amazing as it may seem, the scriptures make it clear. Many people come to church, will go to hell saying, Lord, Lord, have we not? And they have marched and lived and fought on Satan's side their whole life thinking they're Christians. And we need to make sure that that doesn't happen to anybody here. And if you look at your life and you realize, you know, I don't know if I'm saved. I want to say I love Christ, but my life doesn't show it. Maybe you just don't. If there's no pattern of you loving Christ and serving Christ and doing things which the people of Christ are supposed to do, then just assume you're not. And then turn your life to Christ. Reject your old master. Receive your new master. Receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Of course, you're going to have to turn away from Satan's will and Satan's way. Which most people think is their will and their way, but it's not. They are held captive by Satan to do his will and they don't know it because they're deceived and deluded. And you have to trust in Jesus's death on the cross to save you. And only that, not your works, not your church attendance, not your Bible knowledge. Nothing like that will save you. It's only Jesus. It is only his person and his work on the cross that will save you. And if you've never come to the place in your life where you've turned from your sins to receive Jesus Christ, do it this morning. I mean, he's already made the sacrifice. He's already died on the cross. He's already shed his blood. He's already paid the penalty. The free gift of God is extended. The command of God is ushered. To all the ends of the earth, God is commanding that all men everywhere repent and believe. Because he's coming again. And when he comes again, you don't get to repent when you see him. You have to believe in faith. It'll be too late then. And so in your heart, cry out to God and let God save you. Let him change you. Let him put his Holy Spirit within you and make you into a new creature, somebody who loves God and rejoices with God's people and loves God's people and loves God's way and wants to just pursue righteousness the rest of your life. He'll make you into that. And if that's not happening in your life now, then you're not born again. I think the oldest Christmas hymn we sing was written in the 12th century A.D. towards the end of the Dark Ages. It's a hymn... That kind of has this somber melody. It's called O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We, we've sang it here. And it was written before mistletoe. Not before mistletoe, but before the mistletoe 
legends and before Santa Claus and before Rudolph, before cards and trees and lights and the Grinch. It was written during a time where there weren't many resources to draw from, but they did have a Bible. And so they wrote this hymn. And what's great about the hymn is, is it looks forward to Jesus coming both the first time for Israel and the second time and kind of combines them together. And it mentions, surprisingly, many of the things that we have learned about in our text. Here's the song. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. O come, O come, thou Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times did give the law and cloud and majesty and awe. O come, Thou rod of Jesse free, thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell, thy people save and give them victory over the grave. O come, thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thy advent here. O drive away the shades of night and pierce the clouds and bring us light. O come, thou key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home where all thy saints with thee shall dwell. O come, O come, Emmanuel. And then the refrain. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. And what's neat about those words is they are right on biblically. You have to remember, you know, we live, we've, we've lived for so long seeing the church mostly comprised of Gentiles that we forget that before that, a long time before that, it was all about Israel. The Gentiles were in the world without hope, without God, without his promises, and that God, by his grace, has set aside Israel for a time to save some of the Gentiles. But he's not going to forget his promises to Israel. And when we get to heaven and we're in the kingdom, it makes it clear that 10 Gentiles will grab the robe of a Jew and say, please let us go to Zion to worship the Lord with you. Because they are the chosen nation. It is through them the promises came. The word of God was given. It was through them that the Messiah came and he's going to come. He's going to come and he's going to redeem Israel. And he's going to do it in that tribulation period. So hopefully now you have a better picture of Christmas. Dragons, angels, all kinds of battle going on in heaven. Israel being in anguish and darkness under the curse, oppressed by Gentile powers, Satan being judged. But the great part is that Jesus is coming back. So if you don't know him, get right with him today. He wants to be your king. If you'll have him, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for what a great text in the book of Revelation that tells us so much, so much about the significance and meaning of Christmas. Father, help us as we celebrate Christmas this year to just remember all those hundreds and thousands of years before the church began when you were working through a group of people to give them your word, to give them promises. We thank you for the nation Israel. We thank you for the Messiah. We thank you that he was born and that Satan was not successful in destroying him. And although he died, no one took his life away from him. But he had the authority to lay it down and take it up because there was no unrighteousness found in him. And Father, I pray for anybody here who doesn't know Jesus Christ, who can't really truly say right now before you with an honest heart, I love you, Lord. And Father, for those people, I pray that they would just have the scales 
fall from their eyes and their hearts enlightened and that they would just admit they need you, that they would come to repentance and faith, that they would cry out to you for forgiveness, for salvation, and receive the Lord Jesus Christ as the king that he is. And Father, that all of us in this church would live every day in light of a second coming when Jesus Christ will come to earth and save us and save Israel. Father, we want to see that happen in your good time. Please make it soon. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.